This was the passage that Ronnie referred to last week, and we're here again, so there's no dodging it. The prophet Isaiah contrasts religious ritual, all the things we do that we think please God, with what he asks us to engage in. I thought about these words this week, it's a challenge, and asking myself, in what small and bigger ways can I use what I have, like my voice, my descent, my ascent, my signature, my feet, my money, my time, all of me, for such a time as this. Hear the words again yourself and maybe start the conversation with yourself and with people around you about what you feel God's opening your eyes to. Isaiah 58. Share your food with the hungry and give shelter to the homeless. Give clothes to those who need them and do not hide from relatives who need your help. Then your salvation will come like the dawn and your wounds will quickly heal. Your godliness will lead you forward and the glory of the Lord will protect you from behind. Then when you call, the Lord will answer. Yes, I am here, he will quickly reply. Remove the yoke of oppression. Stop pointing your finger and spreading vicious rumours. Feed the hungry and help those in trouble. Then your light will shine out from the darkness and the darkness around you will be as bright as noon. The Lord will guide you continually, giving you water when you are dry and restoring your strength. You will be like a well-watered garden, like an ever-flowing spring. Some of you will rebuild the deserted ruins of your cities. Then you will be known as a rebuilder of walls and a restorer of homes. This is God's word to us today. Thank you, Anna. It's good to have you back this week too, uh, reading and contributing to our virtual service here. Sorry about the glitch at the very beginning. We did figure out what was wrong. We had an output that was trying to make us high definition, and we are not high definition. We're just normal. So we got that fixed. Uh, And great, great. There's always a technical glitch doing these things, and uh, we've learned a lot over these weeks and months. We still have some things to learn, but I appreciate uh, everybody working so hard. I appreciate everyone who's who's watching. Uh, It's so funny getting out just for the just for the memorial this week, I had several people at, at uh, in, in Carol's family say, hey, when you start gathering in person again, please don't stop broadcasting because now you're our church and so many folks are, are watching online and we'll try to figure out what that looks like when we get back together again. Today was the day that we were going to get back together, uh, but we decided it would be the better part of judgment and wisdom to not do that at this time. Uh, getting out and about is one thing. Putting 200 people inside a single room uh, is another thing these days. And uh, of the five fastest growing by percentage of the five fastest growing counties of COVID-19 in Florida by percentage, four of those five are in the Florida Panhandle. Walton, Bay, Franklin, and Gulf counties. So essentially from from the border of Destin eastward uh, we're in a pretty significant uptick right now, about 70% increase over the last week. And so please take care of yourselves and be conscious of that. I wrote a column for this weekend, and you can read it in the Detroit News, the Walton Sun, or, or a few other outlets. 
that is the filtration of my thoughts from a piece I wrote last fall. September or October of 2019, best I remember, and it has never been published or shared until this weekend, and it was before COVID-19, before lockdowns, before the pandemic, and so much of the chaos that has become the year of our Lord 2020. I'm not a a prophet. I certainly didn't predict what would happen or anticipate what would happen this year, but I, I did speak of a deep uh, unease that I felt about the world, about my place in the world, about my vocation. And uh, as a giggle for myself, you'll love this, especially as I was wearing my Che Guevara hat today. Uh, as a giggle to myself, I wrote this document and saved it on my computer entitled The Manifesto. Isn't that just so revolutionary? Uh, and if I boiled that personal declaration of mine down to a single sentence, it would be this. We need to build better bridges. And as is my custom, here's a story that best explains what I want to say. On a country road near where I was raised, there was this large iron bridge. And some of you know what I'm talking about. It had these rusty trusses that held the bridge together and they had oxidized to the color of orange. It could only accommodate one car at a time on a single uh, lane. It had these loose wooden planks that you had to make sure the tires were lined up on and you had to hit it straight uh, when you went in. And we we crossed this bridge regularly and it would just creak and groan like a haunted house when we did. And it spanned a river called the Kusawati River. And uh, it was a journey that always terrified me. Of course, by the way, um, the Kusawati River is the same river that inspired James Dickey to write the book Deliverance. And that's another terrifying thing for another reason. But I would say to myself, when we would cross that old bridge, this is the day that this bridge is going to collapse. I was just a little kid. And we're all going to die. Or I would say to myself, Daddy's going to miss those lumber runners. And we're going to plunge into the river below and we're all going to die or somebody is going to meet us in the middle of the bridge and not yield and this massive buick is going over the edge and going to sink to the bottom of the river and again we're all going to die and this is what made me afraid that and the book deliverance when you read it or see the movie when you're far too young but anyway once when our school bus had to take an alternative route home Because of flooding, we had to cross that river in the big yellow school bus. And I had a panic attack like on the third or fourth row there because I knew we're all going to die. But then one day it finally happened and I was so relieved. The old iron bridge was condemned. Barricaded off, shut down. And my fears, I learned, had been grounded in reality this entire time. That bridge could no longer bear the weight. That bridge could no longer hold the traffic that had grown in this little country town. And so the county fathers, hopefully cheered on by good engineering, condemned the bridge, and in its place, they built this two-lane beautiful concrete bridge that had no weight restriction, that multiple cars could pass on shoulders on both sides of the lane, strong, lasting to this very day. It still crosses the Kusawati River there. It was a better bridge. And so all these decades later, I have been feeling a a, a similar apprehension, for lack of a better word, 
For the last few years, I've been struggling to put my finger on this deep, deep sense of of unease that I feel, unease about the world, about how people relate to one another, how people communicate with one another, unease about my own role and my future in all of this. And I've come to understand that I am once again, seemingly on that little country road, looking out at rusty trusses, our bridges, the ones that formerly served us well. The ones that we confidently relied upon for the longest time can no longer guarantee safe passage in the world and communities in which we now live. They cannot bear the weight. They cannot accommodate the busy multiple lanes of traffic. They cannot be trusted to span the barriers between individuals and communities. We need better bridges like no time in my lifetime. And again, I'm no prophet, but I wrote this to myself in my manifesto now almost a year ago. The collapse of our bridges, I think this is a societal-wide phenomenon. The times are a-changing, as Brother Bob told us. The political, economic, social, commercial, and religious structures that have underpinned our greater community are rapidly aging. Consequently, each person has a choice to make to regressively trust the perilous collapsing status quo or to courageously lend a hand in creating new paths forward. I am choosing the latter. I am choosing to build better bridges. Now, I can't do very much about so many of the things that have seemingly fallen into the river below us these days. I can't fix our politics. I can't make civility great again. I wish I could. I can't reverse the economic disparity of the last 50 years. I can't reform race relations. I can't infuse our dialogues with respect and dignity. I am neither equipped nor inclined to engage in some of these arenas, especially when there is more than enough work to go around for everyone. And even as a preacher... What I've given my life to, my entire life to, and I have all these little letters that you can put behind my name to prove that I have an education and that I've been involved. But I can't do much of anything about wholesale religion even in our society. So what can I do? What can you do? Because I have a suspicion that you have many of these same apprehensions and concerns that I do. Well, what did the text this morning say from the prophet Isaiah? For the astute listener, you may have noticed that it is virtually the same reading as last week with a couple additional verses at the end. Isaiah provides a vocational model for God's people. He says, this is what you do. Free those who are wrongly imprisoned. Lighten the burden of those who work. Let the oppressed go free. Remove the chains that bind people. Share your food with the hungry. Give shelter to the homeless. Give clothes to those who need them. This is about liberation. And the result, as we saw last week, was this light shining in the darkness, this well-watered garden like an ever-flowing spring, a garden in the wilderness. And then the addition of verse 12 that Anna read, the verse that forced me today to share these thoughts with you. Some of you, quoting Isaiah, some of you will rebuild the deserted ruins of your cities. You will be known as a rebuilder of walls and a restorer of homes. In the older translations, the phrase repairers of the breach 
is used, and I like that a lot. But the idea is the same. Those places that have broken down, those structures that have collapsed, those pathways and crossings that by age and destruction are no longer usable, some of you will rebuild those. Some of you will lay new foundations. You will become the better bridge builders that we need. I can't, I can't fix everything that is wrong. But I have to do my part. And so do you. Well, I just think it's all gone too far. So you're going to give up? You're going to let things just lie in ruin? You're just going to let the divisions and the barriers and the wide gulfs between us and the broken places just remain as they are? Because these things do not get better by themselves. Well, I don't, I don't want to get involved then who will? If not you, then who? If not now, when? If not where here, where you live, then where else? Well, I can't do anything about it anyway. Well, you can't do anything about anything? You can't give your heart and soul and energy and strength to something? Do you not care about anything that could improve lives and help our neighbors? Surely. Look, permission to speak freely? There's only two people in the room. Permission to speak freely? Okay, they're giving me a nod. Please. I have days. <laughs> where I just don't give a shit anymore. And I know you do too. I mean, I am over it. I am done. I get sick of what I see on the news. There are mornings I weep in the shower because of the callousness and the ignorance and the selfishness of the culture that we have created. I lose sleep asking God questions to which God thus far has chosen not to answer. Questions about hypocrisy, failure of compassion, perpetual injustice. I grow so weary of, of pettiness, religious abuse, fundamentalism, hardness of heart, the destruction of innocence, the stealing of joy, and how we always seem to choose power or party over decency and just plain doing unto others what we would want done for ourselves. And I tell Cindy on a regular basis, you can call her up here from downstairs. She's down there listening, maybe. Maybe she just her. Tim and Ricky are just eating the groceries, but you can call her up here and she will tell you that I say these things. I say, I quit. I'm not going to write another word because nobody cares. I'm not going to sing another song because nobody listens. I'm not going to give another talk because it doesn't matter. I have given my life to this for decades and nothing changes. I got nothing left to say because it doesn't matter anyway. I'm selling everything. I'm moving to a cabin in the woods. I'm going to go live on a pontoon on the intercoastal waterway, and I am checking out. I am over it. I am leaving public life. <laughs> it's like a story. This really captures sometimes how you feel about the world. It's like a story that Stanley Howarth told when he was a young pastor in the South. And he was young. It was the 19, early 1960s. And there was a meeting in town of a group of people that were 
objecting against and resisting school integration. They wanted segregation to remain. And they called this big community meeting and the school gymnasium was just overflowing with people and several pastors were there and giving their thoughts on the subject. And toward the end of a meeting, Stanley says an old pastor walked to the podium and he had served in this community for years. He's a pastor of a Baptist church and everyone was preparing to say amen to whatever talk he was about to give. And then this is what he said. I am ashamed. I am ashamed. I have labored here for years. I have baptized, preached to, and counseled many people in this room. I thought that my preaching of the gospel would have done some good. But tonight, I think differently. I cannot speak to those who are not of my congregation, but to those who are, I can only say that I am hurt and I expected more. (laughs) Wow. The meeting broke up. Two weeks later, schools integrated because of that powerful witness at the right time. And I get it. I get it. Sometimes I feel that way, but you know what? I don't feel like that. God, thank you, Lord, for very long at times. The next day, I put on my shoes, and tie the laces, and go back to work. What choice do I have? Because the only choice is to either retreat and quit or use the fleeting, so fleeting days that we have to lay new foundations. Everything seems to be falling down. The better, the next, the improved, the new has to be built in its place. It's like the old Hasidic story of a rabbi planting a fruit tree. And somebody said, you're an old man. You will never eat the fruit from this tree. And he laughed and he said, I am eating fruit off trees that were planted by people long before I arrived. I'm not planting this tree for myself. I'm planning it for my grandchildren to eat fruit from. That's what I'm talking about. Listen, it's not about you and me and our individualism and our just right now. It's about everything that comes after us. This is why I can't think of myself any longer as a devotional writer who simply jots down things to lift people's spirits. Not anymore. I can't think of myself as the church pastor who has no message but the ringing of the bell of orthodoxy reinforcing the status quo that has brought us to where we are. Not anymore. I can't think of myself as a comfortable middle-aged man attempting to coast my way through the next couple of decades into retirement. Not anymore. I have to stop building walls and build bridges. I must be willing to take greater risk I must be eager to engage with others who are outside my bubble. I must be more ready to reach across religious, social, ethnic, economic, and cultural differences. Because isn't that what a bridge is for? Don't bridges span barriers and obstacles and great distances to bring communities and people together? Don't bridges stand in strength bearing the weight of the diverse people and ideas that travel across them aren't bridges constructed at great risk and great cost because the risk and cost of staying separated is simply too much. So even if it means changing my mind 
and changing my opinions and changing my beliefs, maybe that I have held for years, even if it causes others to think differently of me, to be disappointed in me, to reject me, even if it hurts, this work of building bridges has got to get done. And there's nobody else to do it if we don't. How do we do it? Well, you know the answer. This kind of work can only be accomplished at great risk, great cost, and great love. Thomas Merton, quote, If we attempt to act and do things for others or for the world without deepening our own capacity to love, we will not have anything to give to others. We have to learn to love again. Some of us learning to love maybe for the very first time. Love is the cure. I'm back to my manifesto now. Love is the cure for the prosperity gospel. Obsessed as it is with personal blessing and wealth while half the world lives in squalor. Because love turns our eyes to our neighbors. Love is the cure for compartmentalizing our faith where we can choose financial gain or xenophobia or racism or rank nationalism over decency, compassion, and justice. Love is the cure for how we exclude others because of their culture, their religion, or their lifestyle. Love is the cure for our corporate failure to find consensus in the face of our most pressing problems and our inability to find workable solutions that are interfaith, intercultural, and intergenerational for the common good. Love is the cure for we strict religionists who would rather be right than be kind who would rather be pious than to be gracious. In the words of that old country song, love can build a bridge between your heart and mine. Don't you think it's time? Don't you think it's time? Back to that old iron bridge on the Kusawati River. When a community is small and there's not much traffic, you can get by with an old bridge like that. But when a community grows and a community becomes more diverse and the demands of travel and the demands of communication and the demands of getting from point A to point B become too much for that little bridge, then it's time to expand the bridge. In other words, little problems and little communities need little love. But big problems and big communities and big diversity needs big love to handle those. The kind of love that is patient and kind, long-suffering, the kind of love that perseveres, the kind of love that will not fail, the kind of love that is hungry for justice and peace and righteousness, the kind of love that says, I will surrender myself, I will behave and act as Jesus, I lay down my own rights, I lay down my own privilege, I lay down my own sense of, of, of mine, 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 and entitlement. I give those up in order to serve my neighbor because we're all depending on each other now. I'm not talking about being sentimental. I'm not talking about simply being nice or never making waves or being without conviction. I am saying that the future is worth fighting for. And the tool at our disposal is love of God and love of neighbor. Returning to Merton, if the deepest ground of my being is love, then in love I will find myself, I will find my neighbor, 
and I will find Christ. Last word. Let me tell you what's going to happen to bridges and bridge builders who give themselves to this work. You ready? They get walked on by all sides and from all sides, by everybody. But again, isn't that what a bridge is for? Isn't a bridge there for people to trample across to get to the other side, to connect with communities and ideas and people different than themselves? But I believe that love can bear the weight. It must bear the weight. Because our future depends upon how well we will love our neighbors at this point in time.